0: Very much looking forward to talking with you this morning. James Whitford of Joplin, Missouri, you wear a couple of different hats. Can you tell me a little bit about the different hats that you wear?
1: Well, sure. So uh, I am the executive director and co-founder of a ministry in Joplin uh, called Watered Gardens, Watered Gardens Ministries. And then I'm also the executive director uh, and founder of an initiative called the True Charity Initiative that really sprang out of the work of Watered Gardens.
0: What is True Charity Initiative?
1: Well, the, to really understand it, you know, you do need to understand a little bit of uh, the background of the work that we uh, started 21 years ago called Watered Gardens. So my wife and I co-founded this ministry in Joplin, and then um, and it, it initially, initially, Susan, it was a just a basic redistribution center. I mean, people would donate goods and, and a lot of folks in need would come and we'd help them. And we learned pretty quickly that the outcomes that we were hoping to see in people's lives, you know, as we were interfacing the poor and working with the poor, they weren't what we had hoped. And right. part of the problem was we just weren't engaging them correctly. We, we were a hand, what, what I would call a handout model ministry. And so started to rethink uh, how can we do charity better and read a book called Toxic Charity uh, by Robert Lupton.
0: Sounds fascinating.
1: Yeah, right. It is, and the title kind of tells it all. But the idea that uh, our our great big hearts and lots of compassion uh, that's failed to be coupled with wisdom and smarts mm-hmm. can actually end up doing more harm than help uh, through repetitive handouts. And and in the book, Robert Lupton and Toxic Charity, takes the readers through five steps to dependency. And he says, if you give something to somebody once, they'll appreciate you for it. But if you give it to them again, they'll they'll anticipate that you'll do it a third time. If you give it a third time, they will have an expectation. You'll do it a fourth. A fourth time, they'll feel entitled to it. And a fifth time, they'll be dependent on you for it. So the steps go appreciation, anticipation, expectation, entitlement, and dependency. So we realized, you know, a small team at that time, and we thought, oh my gosh, we're guilty of this. We need to change what we're doing. And at that point, we we began to implement Challenge along the way of our care for people, and uh, it's important everybody understands that challenge develops. I mean, if we're going to move people from uh, help people move from cyclic relief where they're trapped in dependent poverty, if we're really going to help them out of that, it's going to be because there was work involved.
0: You're giving me, you're reminding me of teaching a man to giving a man a fish versus teaching them to fish.
1: Exactly right. But here's the deal: when you challenge, when you begin to uh, challenge people uh, in some way. Uh, they, it's human nature to look for the easiest route out, especially if you're kind of caught up in just day-to-day mode. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just looking for whatever the lowest-hanging fruit is. that's going to feed me today. What's right. the, the What's the easiest thing for me to get a hold of to, to keep me clothed t- today? To keep you know to keep a roof over my head today. And as a result, as we began uh, implementing some challenge model rather than just handout model people began to look for other places to go. In fact, we were having about 4,000 people a year come through our ministry. And when we implemented our work model through what we call the Worth Shop, Mm -hmm. uh, which we believe it's a a good name because work awakens worth in people's lives. So we have a Worth Shop where people are earning meals, they're earning clothes, they're earning nights of shelter, crafting goods that go to market. It's a dignifying way to do charity, but we move from about 4,000 people a year to about 1,300 people a year coming through our doors. And so the question is, where'd they all go?
0: So how, how can you reach them?
1: They, yeah, they went, to, they went to some lower hanging fruit, more handout driven models. And we realized we don't need to just impact the culture inside of the four walls of our own ministry, mm-hmm. uh, but we've got to impact the culture of a community yep. and even beyond that in other communities, because there are systemic uh, problems, systemic problems that are really policy driven. And that's what's so interesting. I mean, I'm excited to be with you guys today yeah. because uh, when my wife and I started the ministry, we had no, I, we had no interest in policy, no idea the policy would matter. And what we found is that bad policy interrupts and hurts good, effective charity work.
0: That's exactly right. I can, I couldn't agree more. We've written about that. At the Show Me Institute, like, uh, Uh, sort of supercharging the engine of the private sector rather than the public sector to solve some of these problems. And it it also makes me think of um, this conversation I had once with a grant maker, a guy who had money to give out and a person running a a food bank, I believe in Texas came to him and wanted to get um, a grant. And he said, well, what's your goal for five years from now? And he said, I think to double the number of meals we're serving within five years. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you any money because your goal should be to bring it down to zero, right? Your goal should be to make people food independent, not to give out more meals. And I do think that there, it's a, that's got to be, in your work, a hard thing to break through to people.
1: You, you know, it's, it's an interesting topic. It, we're talking about the difference between output and outcomes. And so a lot of nonprofits these days measure outputs. How many people are coming through the doors? How much clothing did I give away? How many meals did I serve, rather than how many lives did I change? Uh, how many people did I help get into full-time employment uh, or into independent housing? And so those are uh, that's an important topic and something we do through our True Charity Initiative is actually do outcomes training for teams that are wanting to develop outcomes and, and quit measuring output only. So you work it, with other
0: nonprofits. You work with other oh yeah,
1: companies. Yeah, okay. yeah we, we sure do. We we've uh, we work with other nonprofits. Uh, really nationally, but but mostly in the state of Missouri right now.
0: Help them change their model and their way of thinking.
1: No, I know no. my husband
0: and I work with a church charity that um, supports uh, formerly homeless men and women who are in sort of, uh, uh, not a halfway house, but they get housing, but they have to pay rent. They have to pay some amount of rent, $100, $200 a month, whatever they can afford. And we just bring in meals on Friday nights to mostly uh, talk to them, and um, you know, just sort of get to know them. And we're not allowed to clean; they have to clean. They have to keep the place clean. But it's a nice uh, arrangement for them to be more independent. And um, I think we need more things like that.
1: You know, now I, I would encourage you to watch what happens in your volunteer work there. I, I can tell you, in our long-term program, we have a long-term program called Forge. It's our center for virtue and work. And it's a long, long-term program for men, 12 to 15 months. They go through character development, work readiness, a lot of classes like government and legal living, stewardship and economics. Wow. Uh, so they're going through a lot of stuff. And then they go through literally work readiness where you know mock interviews and resume writing and different things like that, getting ready to bridge into employment. And what's interesting is uh, the times that I have seen government interfere in the yeah. trap of somebody moving and you know, to better their lives. Even just uh, yesterday, we had a person leave our long-term program because of the stimulus check. Oh, no. So this is, yeah, so this, but I mean, this type of thing happens. Another guy uh, some time ago uh, had applied for disability prior to coming into our program, and our program requires that you're going to be self-reliant. You're not going to be on any government programs at all, and so wow. He had to walk away from that idea, and uh, about a a year into the program, maybe a little less, he actually received notification that he had been approved for that disability. And there he was wrestling, yeah, with the idea of moving on toward a path of self-reliance, which we knew that Scott could make it. We knew he could. And yet he ended up taking that back pay and, and, you know, trying thinking he's going to live off of $980 a month on disability. But this is the problem with government getting involved in the charitable work of communities uh, and and people that charity workers know personally when the government never knows really who they are.
0: Yeah. And, and I think we're about to see a big expansion of that, right? <laughs> oh, boy. horizon. Uh, big expansion. And the number of people on long-term disability has already, like, substantially substantially increased. And so we have a lot of lot more people who are dependent on the government. And, you know, people with children are going to get $300 a month for a Mm -hmm. year, and then it's going to go away. Um, So I think we're about to see a big expansion of that. And it's really hard to um, convince people that the government intervening in these situations is not the best idea, because it feels very cold hearted.
1: Well, it, it it does, right? So some people feel like, gosh, this is this is compassion. Even this, what just happened with this uh, last stimulus package, right? The American Rescue Act. Well, truth be told, not all of America needs rescued, and this is just another uh, episode of indiscriminate charity being, dis- you know, distributed to people without any true knowledge of what's going on in individual lives. And I'm telling you that you'll have people who are, uh, in fact, I. I mean, I know one guy who is uh, a chronic alcoholic, struggled with chronic homelessness, came up to me and was asking me if I could help him get his ID so he could get his check cash. Now I know what that stimulus check is going to do to that man.
0: That's right.
1: I mean, it. it, So it's just, it's not a good idea. And the unemployment bump.
0: I mean, a lot of people made more on unemployment in this past year than working, and you know, we need to find a way to encourage them to. And universal income concerns me because I mean, it's like, what about the pride you people take in taking care of themselves, right? Versus.
1: Yeah, this is very paternalistic for people to think, oh, the government should just handle this for people. And uh, so then uh, it's demeaning and degrading and does not esteem the person for who they are and what they can do. And it doesn't seek out their capacity, potential and ability. And that's incredibly important. Recently, uh, well, we had our cri- like a Christmas toy shop where parents can come and shop oh, yes. for Christmas toys. And when they're uh, when they're done shopping and finding the toys that they want for their children, they go to our worth shop and they'll earn them. And then they come back and then they can pick toys that they've earned. And as I was helping a grandmother out to her car with toys that she had earned for her grandchildren, she was so grateful to have the opportunity to not just have toys for her grandchildren, but then to be able to call those toys her own that she's giving to her grandchildren. So that's incredibly edifying and dignifying. And that's really the way that we need to be thinking when we're talking about helping the poor.
0: So, I was reading on your website, which is truecharity.us, right?
1: Yes. Uh Uh,
0: A book review of a book by Arthur Brooks. That's the charity divide. Now, who really cares? And it's about charitable contributions. And I thought this was fascinating. And, you know, I'm not impugning any motives about who does donate money and who doesn't donate money. But what I thought was so fascinating is that the people who are most in favor of government redistributing resources are the least likely to donate to charity or to volunteer. So i <laughs> interpret that as i would love i i really want the government to take care of it but i don't want to have to invest anything take care of the poor people i don't want to invest
1: it really is it's an abdication of personal responsibility it's a willingness to say hey i'm willing to pay some higher taxes but i just don't want to get my hands dirty i don't i don't want to actually uh, you know be in the trenches where I'm trying to build relationships with, like, like you and your husband showing up and helping serve a meal yep. at a place. I mean, and so that's exactly right. It was very interesting research that Arthur Brooks did there. and um,
0: Fascinating. And also that people who are religious are more likely to volunteer and to contribute.
1: Well, sure. And I mean, when you think about that, it kind of makes sense. If you have an eternal perspective, then uh we're not so caught up in you know trying to build our own kingdom while we're here on this on this earth right. and so it frees us to be more liberal in our giving yeah
0: so if a if a nonprofit or a charity wants to be part of your network what do you require of them
1: well really uh anybody who's interested can be a part of the network uh, that's truecharity.us/join and so okay. they obviously folks who are not somewhat lining up with what we believe in the way of charity being privately funded, um, work oriented and and outcome driven. So those are really the three pillars of true charity in our opinion. And that's the truest charity is going to be privately funded, no government funding involved. It's going to be outcome driven and it's going to be work oriented. It's not just going to be handouts. And so we tend to draw in members who are already thinking along those lines. Uh, but we do have a certification where people who actually meet all three of those pillars can can work toward you know certification as a as a certified true charity
0: so, okay and how many do you have
1: well right now we have it's relatively new the mem- the whole membership idea growing a network is relatively new for us yeah. we have 26 Uh, member organizations, mostly Southwest Missouri, Kansas, but we have Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Oregon. So there are some other organizations nationally that are starting to jump on board. So we're not even a year into this at this point.
0: That's great. Um, You know, another thing that I see happening a little bit in the public sector that worries me, and it's happening in Missouri, is um, municipalities or the state collecting money through sales tax that's dedicated to charities. I don't know if you are familiar with this, but there's a blind pension fund, um, that is funded through the government. And now some municipalities are collecting, for example, a small sales tax to solve the homeless problem or a small sales tax. So they're essentially using government to mandate people's giving, you know what I mean? Like every time you purchase something, you'll be giving to them. And that to me is even worse, right? Because then the charities will become dependent on the government money, right? Right. And they won't have to work to get donations or to convince people that they're a good organization. They just sort of have this uh, reliable flow of funds.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And see that. So I just I just wrote something recently about that. It really does short circuit. The, uh, the, the impetus or the oomph that ought to be present in every charity among the leadership of every charity and mission, to be involved in community, to be talking with donors. And a lot of those donors end up becoming volunteers. And yeah. so the, the, the hustle that you've got to be that kind of a mode where you're out really talking with a lot of people about the good work you're doing, when you short circuit that because you can get one grant, that's going to cover, you know, a quarter of your budget. It uh, yeah. really, really does more harm than good. It begins to isolate you from the community that ought to be present at your doors and involved with the people that you're serving.
0: We call that free market. And yeah. I, I guess a lot of people don't associate <laughs> free market policy with charitable giving, but it's the truth. It's the same as everything else, right? You got if you have to work for it, you're going to appreciate it more. It is.
1: And it's been I mean, if if I if we could just take you into the mission and you could hear people come up to the office and they would talk and and just to hear them talk about, hey, I need to earn, uh, you know, a meal voucher for tonight and I need to earn some clothes today. So there's this free market kind of thing that just naturally happens now at our mission. And instead of, you know, them paying dollars for what it is they need, they just it's time tallied. And so then they'll head off and, and go and, and work for it. And what you guys would be interested to know is that years ago, when we started our workshop, we were having to pay work comp insurance on every one of those people because it, they, were considered, they were considered employees by state of by, by the by the state. So we actually uh, had some verbiage put into a work comp bill in the state of Missouri a number of years back that changed that so that nonprofits in the state of Missouri can now enter into basic dignifying partnership exchange with individuals who are in need Partners. for basic things, right? Without them being constrained to a formal employer employee relationship. So we've changed the definition of employee basically in the state of Missouri, and it should allow nonprofits to do more of the kind of work that you and I like in charity.
0: So what kind of work? Can you give me some examples of like, if they need to earn a meal ticket, what, what are they Sure. available?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that we have a recycling center we have a, you know all sorts of uh, you know everything from refrigerators to microwaves uh, HVAC units and things will get dropped off, or we'll even collect them, and then those get broken down, and then the copper inside of them gets turned into jewelry or copper cuffs, uh, copper labels that go onto leather journals that are crafted in our worth shop. Mm-hmm. Um, we even have a, a coffee business, redeemed bean coffee. So we have beans that come in from Nicaragua, and we roast them on site and bag them, and people order those offline and. Uh, we have a fudge we have a, those are
0: skills too, so people are picking up skills
1: they they are although uh, our long term program is much more for the skill development side, getting ready for work. Okay. Uh, this is very basic stuff that doesn't require a lot of training it It needs to be pretty simple and because you, you uh, we are dealing with people who have a lot of mental health issues of course, yeah chronic substance abuse problems and uh, but people to to just look at folks who are struggling with those things and say, Oh, well, you're just a charity case is, is just not correct.
0: So disrespectful.
1: It, it really is. We've got to look at people and say, Hey, I see the hurdles and the tough things, but I, I recognize that there's capacity and potential as well.
0: And they're and, but for the grace of God, go I, right? So, um, wait, I just had a thought that no, I lost, which happens to me regularly. Oh, so <laughs> they have to, um, maybe work an hour or something like that.
1: Yeah, thirty minutes for a meal ticket, oh, okay. uh, and then that th- we have a mission market where you shop for food for your home that you want, but and you can uh, earn that food afterward, and uh, so it depends on how much food you get, and that'll drive the time that you're in our worth shop, and uh, yeah, so we we even Do have other. Turn
0: anyone away.
1: No, no, we don't turn anyone away. So we haven't had anybody pull up in a Lamborghini and want to take advantage of these services. Uh, So basically, it's a self-selection thing. People who are willing to work for what they need uh, and, and, and are still in need are going to come. And what's so great about the free market is I don't have to do a bunch of means testing stuff. (laughs) Like, you know, what's your income level? What's your, it's more of, Hey, are you willing to work for what you need today? We'll, we'll give you an opportunity to do it.
0: Um, so out of the 4,000 out to 1,300, are you growing back now or uh, word of mouth, I would guess, among the homeless population? You
1: know, it, it really is. It's about the same. Yeah. So it's usually about 1,000 to twelve to 1,300 people in a year that we'll serve. But the work is so much more meaningful. It all slowed down, Susan. It just, sure. uh, I mean, it was just handout. People would come in, we'd give them a bag of clothes, out the door they'd go. And now things have slowed down where we're building relationships with people, we're encouraging our volunteers we have you know, more than 700 volunteer shifts every month through our mission wow. and so we're always encouraging relationship development with people but it just kind of slow it slows things down in a good way covid well covid was a challenge right and so uh we're we're, we're finally on the tail end of that but we we immediately we did something that was interesting we immediately put i i had every one of our four uh ministry facilities outfitted with uh, micron filters that caught viral particles because that was my thought is that if somebody coughs or sneezes near uh, some sort of an intake vent, then potentially you have a pretty rapid circulation. Mm -hmm. And so we did that. And of course, a lot of education uh, always had all the basics on, on hand. We started doing half of our meals served outside, half inside. I mean we did a lot of things like that, but we only had four cases wow. of COVID in our shelter. We have a 105 bed shelter when you put wow. our facilities together. and uh, so it was really a blessing that we didn't see any more than that and nobody was seriously. They all recovered. Oh, so that's. Great.
0: I know yeah. my neighborhood is fairly I live in the city of St. Louis and we're a very uh, active neighborhood. And this weekend, we are going to go to one of the most disadvantaged areas of the city and pass out flyers or help people find out how to get vaccinated. Because I think that that is a big problem for folks without smartphones or computers to figure out how to get vaccinated. And we're going to miss, those people are going to miss out if we don't reach out to them.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, there's a lot of coordination and collaboration happening along those lines in our our community. So,
0: Well, you seem like you have no lack of energy. So where are you where are you headed next?
1: Well, I, I I'm so glad to make the connection with you. I, I'd yeah. love to see this relationship develop. I, I was just in Jefferson City talking with legislators about the need for uh something that maybe you could help with. We What's up? well we right now when working with communities, we always give them a report card on how they're doing with poverty and welfare dependency and that type of thing. The problem is in the state of Missouri and in many other states, you cannot get welfare data at the community level. Really, You can only get welfare data at the county level. And that just does not empower a a community like Carthage, Missouri, that's in Jasper County, or Joplin, Missouri, that's in Jasper County. They have no idea of uh, the, the welfare dependency going on in their own city limits. And so uh, that's absolutely necessary. If we really want, as a state, to see communities uh, take over, to have more local control, uh, over the issues of poverty. We're going to have to empower chamber leaders, uh, mayors and other leaders in the city to know what is the welfare dependency like in my city. So we, we think that that's going to have to be a bill because we're just not getting, uh, the help that we'd like to see from, you know, the executive branch in that particular administrative department, which is probably DSS.
0: Um, what about the, um, Roz Chetty work on, um, opportunity moving out of the I know that he has things down to zip code level um in terms of people in poverty and their likelihood to come out of poverty um but I've seen maps of Missouri the other thing I would say I think the federal government revised their poverty measure and there's a new poverty measure and by new I mean 15 years old 20 but it's new (laughs) or and it is uh uh it takes into account household income uh minus um government assistance. So really changes the poverty number. So you have that the, the, the typical poverty number is the household income. And then when you take the offset of uh, government assistance, you see a lot of children move out of poverty and older people sort of move in. Like you do see a big shift in terms of who is living in poverty and children in particular, the numbers go down. But I think that measure exists. I just don't know what yeah. level of granularity it's at.
1: Boy, I tell you, it's been really tough. We've been hunting and looking and working with groups like Foundation for Government Accountability and just trying to figure, just trying to crack this nut. But the name that you mentioned, Susan, what was it that had done some work down to the zip code level? I'd like to look, look him up.
0: Raj Chetty. I'll send it to you after this. Okay, Um,
1: good.
0: From Harvard. He has a very interesting stuff, but he basically took, uh, tax returns in the 80s and tax returns 30 years later of the children. And he basically saw who was able to come out of poverty. And It has pluses and minuses, but it's very granular and pretty cool zoom in maps and things like that. And so we, uh, the Show Me Institute published a paper on uh, poverty. And um, we looked at also distressed communities or DCZs, I think they're called. And there's a bunch of those in Missouri. And the point of that was to see how we could get the private sector, encourage the private sector to fill the gap. And I'm really glad to know that you're working on that in Joplin, but the boot heel of Missouri, I mean, we have some areas of extreme need. And I don't, my policy background is education. And so I think a lot about how the schools are doing in those areas. And unfortunately kids are graduating from high school in our poor, poor rural areas, very few skills, um, they don't have what it takes to apply to college. They their high school might not even offer the course courses you need to apply to Mizzou. You know, there's not very many jobs, right? There's, right. Right. You're gonna have like the subway out by the highway. There's just not gonna be very many jobs, and it's uh, I, I just I I know people are working on it. And I know like people like you are working on it in your communities, and that's so important. But I I it worries me like what do we, you know, we can't just forget about these rural areas.
1: No. And think that
0: they're no. just you know yeah. gonna be fine because they're not gonna be fine.
1: No. So we just did an all day workshop, true charity workshop in Salem, in Salem, Missouri. I mean, population's 4,900 or something. Right. And so we're, we're, we'll be moving into a lot of communities like that, where you've got people with some really big hearts and what we will do. In fact, we were doing an outcomes training in Neosho, uh, Missouri. And for a, a an organization that has truly been nothing, but come in and sit down and we're going to feed you no no questions asked. Right. And so we got, they They wanted to get involved with us and they've ended up changing their model now where they're doing more of an investigative type of charity and they're developing programs that are going to help folks, you know, move toward education and work. See, that's What's the investigative
0: very, charity. What do you mean by that? Well,
1: what I mean, like is sit, sitting down and having some conversation and talking and asking some questions. So yeah. we've developed some tools that just help a charity worker do that assessment. Uh, so that they know more about the individual that they're helping rather than just handing them a plate of food or cash out a window or whatever. And so that's, yeah, so the outcomes that are coming from those trainings, though, are the very things that you are recognizing that are lacking in some of the rural communities. The chances for a good education and good work, et cetera, uh, that type of thing will begin to happen the more that we are engaging local communities and local charities on developing outcomes, because outcomes are always going to lead toward education, work, independent housing, better social connections, all of that.
0: Yeah. And I just think like there's a tendency in the legislature, especially the rural legislators, to think that the problems in Missouri are in St. Louis and Kansas City. You know, because we do have very poor communities in North St. Louis and in Kansas City and clearly a crime problem, clearly a a race problem in St. Louis. So it can be easy to say, oh, that's those problems. Those problems exist there. And that's that's not true.
1: No, no, you're exactly right. It's it's they're different in some ways, but there's some serious problems in the rural areas. Yeah, Yeah. people who and sometimes people who uh, will go a long time without even asking for help when it would, and they're not as connected socially as they ought to be, and so they can run into some deeper and deeper problems as a result of that.
0: And I know, like, um, my kids and myself, we did like some summer mission trips where you go and like fix up someone's house, you okay. know, we did quite a few of those. And I was happy to do it. And I thought it was a good experience, except there was just enough times where I watched the person, watch us fix up their house that I thought,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: why am I cleaning your kitchen? You know what I mean? I just thought, or my son went and, I, and all due respect, very, very hard lives. And I'm not, I don't want to be judgmental, but I think when the, that kind of help is offered, then people will take it. And one woman, um, Had a tornado, I think, had gone through her property and ruined her trailer. So she simply bought, she was given another trailer from FEMA, but the old one 10 years later needed to be removed. You know, so stuff like that. It's like, why aren't we empowering these people to help themselves? You know, I just think those are very admirable programs that churches put together for kids. But yeah, so,
1: so we're develop. you know, and the curriculum that we've developed, uh, our online. University, we call True Charity University. Uh, People can go and learn uh, all of these things that are so important. The first mark, we call it, the first mark of effective charity is affiliation. And it is the importance of asking this question, who is most closely affiliated with this person Hmm. that should be involved in their help before I jump in and do it? Wow. And, and that always starts when we go through that uh, discussion. It leads to a discussion on the, uh, the principle of subsidiarity, the idea that whoever's most closely associated with that individual should be the first and primary source of help for that individual, including the individual him or herself. Sure. First, right? yeah. What can you do for yourself? And then where is your family? And are you connected to a, a church? And so, and and then we can look at the local mission in the community. But we want to exhaust these concentric levels that are very natural. And if we don't do that, we're actually interfering and breaking up the very natural relationships that should exist in any community that that flourishes.
0: Well, you make me very hopeful and optimistic because. You know, sometimes I think the world's not headed in the right direction, but then there are people like you who are, <laughs> are pushing it in the right direction. And hey,
1: t- t- we're swimming upstream, aren't that's we? That's
0: right. Road <laughs> in the ocean. Like you can, <laughs> there's so many, but uh, you know, it does make me hopeful. And I, I run into people working and even just my neighbors going to try to get people vaccinated. That is happening all over the place. And I am optimistic that, you know, yeah. human nature, you know, we are good from, from the core. And I do believe that we will figure this out. But, you know, I see massive government handouts on the horizon. And I think what is that going to do for us as a nation, you know, to make us, you know, competitive? I don't know, it just worried.
1: You know, even thinking about just back to the American Rescue Plan Act and the fact that, uh, and uh, I've written an op-ed that'll get published here in the next week, but in it, I talk about um, the fact that we have even there's extension of benefit in that bill that goes all the way to 2030 in some cases. So $5 billion in emergency housing vouchers are available until 2030. And there are other pieces that are up to 2027, 2024. And so this is not a rescue. This is an expansion and an entrenchment of the welfare state to a great extent. You don't
0: pull that back. That's why I, I'm concerned about the child, the $300 a month, Yes, because people just, as you said in the very beginning, one, two, three, four, five, they'll be dependent, right? They'll get the first one, be happy. And the second one, they'll expect. So you said, and the third one's anticipate. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we're going to be dependent on getting a $300 check per child. And you could be making $145,000 your household and get that $300 yes. check every yeah. month.
1: There's a, great, there's a great book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, written by Marvin Olasky. And uh, in it, he says, dependency is merely slavery with a smiling mask.
0: Wow. And, yeah. it's, and
1: it's such a great line, but it's true. Uh, it is a type of bondage, and we've seen it so much in people at our mission. Uh, one lady who now actually, it's an amazing story, she runs our shelter right now. Yes. And so, uh, and she was a homeless drug addict on the streets for more than 10 years, had actually lived in Skid Row in a cardboard box at one point in her life. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and she, she came to faith in our mission after doing 400 community service hours that were assigned by the court and and said, I want to come back here and work here someday. She went to college, got her bachelor's and then got her master's degree. Oh my God, I love that. Now she's she's running our shelter and in an interview, when the news did an interview on her and they said, we want to know about the story. During the interview, uh, they were asking about her journey off of welfare. And she said, hey, I want you to know it was harder for me to, to, to drop my food stamps, to get off my food stamps than it was for me to get off of heroin.
0: Wow. It's,
1: it's such an eye open, but I'm telling you, we meet people all the time who are scared. They're scared to let that benefit go yep. and to try to make it on their own. And so they remain sometimes their entire lives tethered on a short rope, tethered to the state rather than experiencing the freedom that God's intended for them. And uh, so we, we do have an uphill battle here. Yeah, but, we do. We do. Yeah. I, know,
0: I used to live in DC for quite a long time and there's a newspaper there produced by home, the homeless and the name of the newspaper escapes me, but I bought it every week. It was like a dollar. So if they were certified sellers, they had to go in the morning and pick up the newspaper and pay 30 cents for each uh, copy they picked up and then they could sell them for a dollar, but they had to buy, p- pay for them up front, sell them for a dollar. And a lot of the content was produced by the sellers. Um I got to know quite a few of them, <laughs> you know, but they'd be like, Oh, but I've got a, I've got a column in today, or I have a poem in today. Um, and then the other content too, about policy and issues and crime, you know, it was pretty interesting. And an I loved idea. buying that newspaper. What's that? Yeah,
1: that's a great idea. I've jotted that down. That's <laughs> I
0: love buying that newspaper because I know that they had, they were invested, right? They had to yeah. buy it up front before they could sell it. And they had, uh, vests that said that they were certified. sellers. some people would steal them and try to sell them and just keep the dog. Doll- you know what I mean? That, there was also like a black yeah, market. <laughs> but, um, but I only bought from a certified seller and I had a chance to, as they sold the newspapers, we, we would talk, you know, and hear yeah. their backstory, what they were trying to do and how they were trying to get out. And I just thought it was such a cool program because that of- is
1: great. I've got to learn more about that. I'd like to see something like that in our, in our city.
0: Yeah. That's I'll send you a link to the fantastic. name. Oh, the name good. Thanks. Cool. It was a great newspaper too. So, uh, Lots of good ideas. If people want to find out more, uh, should they go to truecharity.us? Or? Yeah, go to
1: truecharity.us. And then I hope that uh, some of your listeners would come to our True Charity Summit this May. So, we, at Missouri What's, Southern. Tell Missouri, me a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Missouri Southern State University, our True Charity Summit. It's an annual of, of conference. So it'll be a day and a half um, May 18th and 19th and so it's right there on our website truecharity.us you can get signed up for that and our keynote speaker will be Larry, Larry Reed so Larry Reed was uh, president for many years of the Foundation for Economic Education mm-hmm. and uh, and he, he'll he be delivering some great lectures and then we have uh, Ann Bradley who's a fantastic economist Patrick Gary a historian so we have some really great people that are going to come and the whole theme is uh, it It's about reclaiming justice. So, the word justice has been misused and it's been misunderstood. And there's a cry for it, but people don't understand what it is. And so, we're reclaiming justice. That's the name of the summit. And I think that uh, your listeners would really love what we're going to be presenting. So, just check out some of the content at truecharity.us.
0: It's been delightful to speak with you, James, this morning. Find out more. And I hope we can continue this conversation.
1: I do too Thank and I hope so we much. hope we stay connected. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.